0: He's looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Episode 477. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean Luc Godard to Jean Luc Picard. And today we have filmmaker and photographer Terry. Is that, am I saying it correctly? That's close oh, sorry, enough. Sorry, sorry. I, I, you just told me like five seconds ago, but I, I'm already murdering it. But Terry and I, we've been talking on Twitter for years at this point on a million different topics, and we've been trying to get us together for an episode for so long. But today we are finally got him. We're going to be talking about his photography, his videos, but more importantly, we're going to be talking about the forbidden taboo subject of eroticism in film and where it's gone and how come we don't have more of it. But Terry, welcome to Wrong Reel.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I just uh, want to give people a heads up that Terry is our very first guest to be rocking out a pair of shades while recording. He's pulling a Vin Diesel on us, which I, which I love, and so I might have to start wearing shades on all my YouTube videos moving forward. I'll send you a pair of these if you want my Very nice. I-, no, I like them, yeah. They look, they look very Hunter S. Thompson-esque. Uh, I'm a big fan. Now, what's the best way to kind of crack the nut of who you are as a content creator? Because I feel like you have your fingers in a lot of pies, and we've talked about a million different subjects, but do you consider yourself first and foremost a photographer these days, or what, what is your passion? I don't
1: think I have a single medium. At this point, it's, I started out as a kid wanting to be a comic book artist and to move to New York City. I grew up in northern Michigan, and once I hit high school, my interest in film became more heightened. and. My love of comic books remained, but it kind of waned, you know, and so I stopped pursuing art so much and started wanting to be a filmmaker. And, you know, I I started working in video stores and I'd grown up with photography. My dad, even though he was like an avid hunter and kind of an outdoors guy, was also interested in photography. So we had like subscriptions to photography magazines around. And so I grew up with this blend of like Vogue magazine for my mom, photography, comic books, Planet of the Apes, like you know, the late night TV repeats of European horror movies and stuff. Growing up in the 70s, we were exposed to things that nowadays kids aren't exposed to. And so at this point, you know, after after moving to New York City and living there for 10 years from 94 to almost 2004 and working as an actor and making short films and stuff and then moving back to California and abandoning that more for photography of models and whatnot, I think at this point, I'm just kind of dabbling. I'm back and forth between all of them.
0: Well, I, I like how the, you got your multidiscipline approach. I should also give a shout out to is it it's her, her official screen persona, Liz Lapointe, your your wife and uh, your muse and collaborator on on so many projects. But I've watched a ton of her YouTube videos, offering insights on a variety of sexual topics. I should say she's got a, a deep well of wisdom on uh, on many fronts. But I, I guess maybe that's the way I first discovered you years ago was through some of the collaborations that you guys were posting online. But they were eye-catching to, to, to say the least. Well, I don't consider myself any great photo. I don't
1: consider myself like a fine art photographer or any, you know, like I don't consider myself well-honed enough, you know, to stand a candle to some of the people I admire. But, you know, we have an approach to what we do and we kind of, in New York it was like that thing where it was like, hey, let's grab our film equipment, go get drunk and go film a short out in the alleys in Soho or something, you know? Like, And so everything is kind of, we're kind of rough around the edges. And we, if we get the notion that we want to do something, we're like, let's just do it, you know? And sometimes that results in undeveloped uh, ideas or whatnot at first, or we kind of publicly uh, refine it as we go along. So her YouTube channel was born out of, you know, through our relationship, she would tell me her dating stories. And I was like, you need to write a blog where people can ask you questions about relationships and sex because she's so open and, you know, she started out as my model, but she wasn't really interested in just being a pretty face for me. She wanted to, you know, let people know that she was a smart lady and she had insights. So then she came to me and said, you know, my blog's not doing well enough. We need a YouTube channel. And so for two and a half, three years, we filmed that every week too, on top of the modeling and everything else we were doing.
0: Well, I think my all time favorite picks, y'all, have come up together one where just a bunch of comic books strewn about on the floor. And as someone who read comics pretty much religiously from like 1979 to 2000, 14 or 15 i still buy them but it's no longer at the rate that i used to but combining beautiful girl comics all in one environment I was like all right. this is just too many fantasy rolled in one my eyeballs are going to pop right out of my head but th- those uh, every once in so a while whenever i see you post them i always make sure to to re- retweet and give them some love on my savage comics profile
1: Appreciated, appreciate it, and I'm such a huge fan of the Savage Comics Twitter.
0: Yeah, I don't I think- post nearly as much on there as I used to because I've just got so much other stuff going on with the uh, the YouTube channel and the, and the podcast, but I definitely try to retweet stuff that I find interesting. Tell me a little bit about your time with the video store in New York because it sounds like while you were here, you were bumping into guys like Abel Ferrara, and you definitely had a, a taste for the, the New York kind of dangerous underground film scene. Well,
1: I had, um, my film school is basically a little video shop in Ann Arbor, Michigan called called Liberty Street Video. And Ann Arbor is such a cool little town. And I worked there for about two years and would watch about three to four movies a night. You know, it's where I was exposed to the deer hunter and Martin Scorsese and like just everything I could get my hands on. And I remember when Bad Lieutenant came out, I uh, went to Detroit to see it because it wasn't playing nearby. And I saw it like three times. We saw that in Reservoir Dogs and like all the '90s explosion of indie films. That were like, and once I was a fan of Abel Ferrara, I was like, I've got to work with that guy. And so my whole reason for moving to New York was to meet him. And he kept talking about how he wanted to do a biopic of John uh, John Holmes, the porn star. And so that was my dream that like I was going to get cast in that role. Nice. And it was delusional, but. Um, yeah there's not so, a lot
0: of guys who are packing that level of heat I mean I, I mean there are a lot of porn stars who are well endowed but John Holmes definitely takes it to uh, another level
1: yeah it was ridiculous
0: I don't know if you ever saw the, the Dracula version
1: that they did where he was in that oh so, I don't think I don't believe so no I forget who the director of that was but it was great um, but anyway after I had kind of got tired of Ann Arbor it was too small for me I was like I'm gonna go to New York I'm gonna meet Abel Ferrara so I moved to New York City with like 300 bucks in my pocket a um, uh, a closet went being rented to me in Spanish Harlem and, you know, I'd never been there. Never been there. I took a Greyhound bus from Northern Michigan and my first day there I got a job at RKO Warner Video on 49th and Broadway. It's no That's longer there, I don't think. And I got a job being a win- window dresser so I would put together when new videos would come out. VHS was still the thing at that time. And people like Gene Siskel – or not Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, Michael Jackson. I met Gerard Depardieu there. Nice. All these cool people would come in. And you know, VHS at the time was like 80 bucks a pop. You know, They would come out new. And um, and that was the place. And they had stores all over the city, and they had one down in uh, Greenwich Village. And I would work at that location on occasion. And Willem Dafoe would always come by and knock on the window, open the door, and go, rent my movies today.
0: And oh, he'd I Keep where on. was the store in the village?
1: God, I forget where the location was at this point because I've, it I've, didn't last.
0: Yeah, long. I've been I've been in the village for eight years now, so it's definitely starting to feel like home down here. Yeah,
1: did I want to ask you? Is Kim's video Underground Video still there? Nope,
0: It, it sadly, has moved on. Uh, Rob Cotto and Marcus Penn who've been on the podcast a bunch, they both were religious Kim's Video customers from London. Rob told this fantastic story about this horrible encounter he had with director Alex Ross Perry when he was working as a clerk at the store. But if people want to hear that. That was on our New York Film Festival episode uh, in 2018. So that's well worth hunting down. In any event, yeah, I've never even, I haven't been inside a video store in New York probably since like 2012. I remember going in one in Brooklyn with my brother because my brother's old school, the late adopter on technology. So he was still renting DVDs and videos and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's been a long time since I've set foot in a video store. I worked in one my last year in college in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that was killer. I just absolutely loved it because I got free rentals and I got a little extra money in my pocket. So yeah, working in a video store is always good, always good fun. Yeah. So the one that I eventually
1: ended up in was um, uh, on 105th Street and Broadway. It was called Movie Place. And it was independently owned by this great lady who used to be a airline steward. And she opened it up before. It was like one of the first video stores in New York. And it was just a few blocks from Columbia University. So we would have a lot of the film professors. Um, what's the guy who did Silver Lining Playbook? I always forget his uh, name. David,
0: uh, David, David Russell.
1: So he was accustomed to come in all the time and chat with us. Tom Noonan, who was a serial killer Manhunter, I remember the first time he walked in the store, I almost had a heart attack because he's so tall. Yeah, and Richard Dreyfus would come in and we'd forgive his late charges if he told us secret unknown trivia from Jaws and stuff. Just a lot of cool people. And being a, a movie lover from northern Michigan who hadn't really, you know, I was starstruck by everyone. You know, if I met somebody, I could barely speak. I saw Steven Soderbergh in a... Uh, bookstore Shakespeare books, I think downtown near where Tower Records used to be, and I couldn't even speak to him. My ex-wife had to literally say, "He's such a huge fan. He wishes he could tell you." <laughs> that's <laughs> great because The
0: Limey is one of my favorite movies. So, right, kill That's top. I've, I'm always flip flopping on my favorite, but that's definitely always in the mix as one of my top two or three favorite Soderbergh flicks by far. Yeah,
1: it's so good. So we had such a great experience at that video store, and I was there for almost the whole ten years I was there, and. Oh. You know, just a great we helped the Coen brothers do the flying carpet uh, research for Big Lebowski and the boss, who is this great dude who was a little older than me and was also trying to be an actor. We slipped our headshots into their the bag because we had a delivery service where kids on bikes delivered movies all through the Upper West Side. And we slipped our headshots in, and after that, they stopped coming in because <laughs> I guess they might have been
0: bothered by that. Gotcha. Fair enough. Now, how did you – I know you eventually worked on Able for our film, so give me the, so I, give me the details I, on that.
1: I, I, one of his films. The thing is I, I was panhandling to get a film that I wrote called Purgatory Lounge um, Funded. So I would go down to Wall Street in a three-piece suit and a tie with this sign that I constructed with dinosaurs and film reels all in this bag. that said, please help fund my independent film. And that was when digital video was new and Lars von Trier was doing his dogma thing and everybody was shooting digital video. And I um, maxed out a bunch of credit cards, buying digital video cameras, that Sony bx 1000 that everybody was getting their hands on. And I was like, well, if I raise money and I, the, my first weekend doing it, I went to Wall Street and made a thousand bucks doing it. And I was like, wow, this is huge. I can do this. And I was panhandling one day for this thing. And I met this girl who came up to me and she scoffed at me and she's just laughed at it. And she's like, all right, I'll give you a couple bucks. And she ended, her name was Echo Denon. And she ended up being the granddaughter of the producer of La Caja Fall and the daughter of Pamela Tiffin, who had been in movies with um, Paul Newman and who's in the drowning pool. She's in the drowning pool, I think. And she, I was looking for someone to, I was going to shoot this film myself and I ended up casting her in it. Well, we kind of ended up having kind of a thing and, you know, she was really great. But she's like, I'm actually a friend of Abel's and I'm going to introduce you to him because I told her how badly I want to meet him. And then one night she called me and was like, are you ready to meet Abel? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I really I was so excited. So we went to this really seedy apartment and he was he had this whole entourage and all sorts of other things that I won't mention. on you know, here he's walking around clutching this cat like <laughs> an evil. <laughs>
0: I've heard crazy stories about what his private life was like. Even his professional life, I knew a guy who worked in the production department on, I believe it was Bad Lieutenant, and they had like a suite of hotel rooms, and that people were smoking crack at work. Like that is, I mean, I've seen, you know, unprofessional conduct before, but smoking crack in the workplace, that's definitely uh, next level. Yeah, most jobs you can't get away with that. Yeah. Thank goodness for it. I'm Bad Lieutenant because what a work. I mean, that's, that was my gateway into him. A buddy of mine in, high, in college was a freak for it. He had a poster for it, and that NC-17 VHS cassette we basically wore out. And People might think that perhaps that's not a movie that you ought to be wearing out, but we just found it so outrageous, and I've never lost a taste for provocative movies that really push your buttons, that really grab you by the shoulders and shake you, and that's a movie that just refuses to be ignored. And there's something about Farrar in the 80s and 90s. I mean, everything he touched, even his Lester movies from there have like this sense of danger and this sense of excitement and they're showing you a side of New York that you never get to see. So from Miss 45 up through King of New York, I mean, all these movies are just so fucking outstanding and I don't think he gets nearly the love and adoration he deserves.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, if he only (laughs) had made Miss 45, King of New York and Bad Lieutenant, he would have had a perfect trilogy of brilliance. But I actually like Body Snatchers too. I thought it was really well done. Um, And he's got a couple others that I really like. But King of New York and Bad Lieutenant are the two that I'm just like. It's so uncompromising, and that's what I'm a fan of: is artists who are not afraid to go out on a limb and expose everything to deliver, you know, a genuinely original vision.
0: Now, what was he like in person? Because I only know him through interviews, and in interviews, he's a pretty much thoroughly, almost deliberately unlikable individual. Where he's doing everything in his power to antagonize whoever might be interviewing him. Is he does he have a different persona when he's meeting people and the cameras aren't rolling?
1: He was incredibly gracious. I, it, My view of him changed after that night because I couldn't believe that this was the man that created these brilliant works. Because, you know, he might have been in a state of, uh, you know, whether he had it consciousness. Off. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's really hard to understand him between his thick Bronx accent. He's kind of like Keith Richards. Of No, he's you know, unintelligible at times, without a doubt. Yeah. But he was incredibly gracious. And I, you know, I, we, we Echo and I kind of fell out of contact for a long time there, and so we—I didn't end up going anywhere with that, um, or seeing him again. But I was certainly grateful to have met him.
0: Well, we'll definitely his subject. His name will be coming up again because the star, the big movie we'll be discussing today, ended up working with him in Matthew Modine in the late '90s. So Abel Ferrara will come up again. But let's start switching gears a little bit into your book and some of the movies that inspired it. First and foremost, what is this big mammoth tome that you've been working on as of late? The Chosen Nightmare? Indeed. That was a based on a script that I
1: wrote um about twelve years ago called Bulletproof Voyeur. And it was about a woman who wakes up unconscious, naked, on the top floor of an abandoned warehouse, and she starts to make her way down through the building. She doesn't know who she is or how she got there, and there's all this terror that confronts her as she tries to escape. And then at the end, she you realize that something entirely different is going on without spoiling it, that it's supernatural. And, um, and I was going to film it as a short film, an experimental film with this young woman. I was living in California, and she wanted to be a model and actress. And her parents got a hold of the script. And on the day we were supposed to start working on it, they took her, even though she was an adult woman, up north and told her they were going to celebrate her birthday by taking her to this crazy penguin exhibit or something. But they basically got her out of there because they had read the script and said sh- there was no way they were going to let her do it.
0: And you should have just kept that screenplay locked away in your head. I got it all up here.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I shelved it and was frustrated and like, this is what happens when I try to make a movie by myself. Because that was my idea that like, I was tired of collaborating with people who didn't want to make movies for art, who just wanted to get rich or become movie stars. And you know, my independent spirit was like, "Let's just do it, no matter what it takes. Who cares? If we have to draw some of the sequences, whatever we have to do, claymation." And it was hard to find people who were on that level. And I've written about forty screenplays, and they're all ridiculous. Like my friend, I was like, at one point, I was like, "Hey, I want to do a sequence where a baby is born, but it it comes out of the vagina with a handgun wielding and shoots everybody in the room," and he's laughing, going, "Man, you can't do that." Miike would do that, right? And I was like, "Well, I'm." That's what I want to see. In the yeah,
0: movie. that would be an outtake for Ichi the Killer,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, he do. He doesn't care. I mean, what was that movie where the the man came out of the woman like fully grown? Gozu, I believe, is what it's
0: called. Yeah, yeah the very end. And there's a little pop sound. And he's like, "Hello," and he kind of he just slides out. But yeah, I saw that the Egyptian in LA, and yeah, the entire audience just about fell out of the chairs, just laughed uproariously. So that's what makes Takashi Miike so beautiful is that he does all these horrible just commits all these atrocities on the screen, but he does it with a wink and a smile and a sense of humor, and it helps yeah. the it helps the medicine go down. It's good for everyone to be exposed to works like that. Uh, absolutely, I could not agree more. Now, is this a book that's gonna be available through crowdfunding, are you gonna sell it online, or how, how can people check out The Chosen Nightmare if they're curious? You know,
1: so I brushed it off a couple years ago, and my wife and I had done almost 10 years of modeling. She was starting to get tired of modeling for the sake of just posing. And I said, you know, I have an idea to turn this script into a book and shoot it like a movie over the course of however long, however long it takes to do this. And I rewrote it. So it, was com- it became a completely different thing. And she read it and she was like, you know, as you know, because you've seen a copy of it. Um, I've, got, actually,
0: I've got it on my coffee table right in front of me. I've got it right beside Immoral Tales, another book that I bought on Amazon per your recommendation, which I've been loving picking through. Are you enjoying that? Oh, hell yeah. No, it's like I, I keep wanting to do a, mo- a video about erotic erotic movies, but I'm like, God damn, why well, could do like 100 videos on erotic movies? Because they have like the physician's desk-side reference of all the erotic movies from like the 50s to the 80s now. Yeah, it's brilliant.
1: Mm-hmm. So the Chosenheimer, like we – we, she read it, and even though like there's scenes where there's basically gonologically graphic scenes in there, and uh, a lot of nightmarish, really hard to, um, you know, see stuff. She she was down. She's like, all right, let's do it. And so we found another model on Model Mayhem. We were living up, and the reaction to the book. The reason I dusted it off is because we had dealt with a lot of conservative, closed minded people where we were living. I was managing a movie theater for six years. And we were dealing with a lot of really um, repressed
0: individuals. Sounds yeah, like.
1: we're very judgmental and made our lives very hard up there. We had landed there as a kind of an idea. It was an ideal that maybe we could raise our, we have an eight-year-old, raise our child in a safe environment um, away from cities and whatnot. And that would be good for him. But I think since we've changed our our views of that. So we're now living in a more urban area. Gotcha. Fair enough. But so we dusted off. We, we cast this great guy from model mayhem, um, who was really open, not afraid of the nudity and the sexually explicit scenes he would have to do. And we got access to a great old abandoned schoolhouse to shoot the majority of it in. Um, and we shot Wait, it. Why not? The-
0: if you're going to do some erotic photography, what better place than a school? <laughs> a school- <Right. laughs> so, and that was the thing. Was you can so hear the perfect. echoes of the laughing children all around you imbued right? in the walls. So, And we shot it. And we
1: shot it the way it was in the script completely. And then a year ago, I put out a version of it after I spent about a year editing it where I cut off kind of the hard ending. There was a really intense ending, as you know. And I released that version of the book and I wasn't happy with it. So I stewed on it for about six months. And then went back to work on it, and did this 300-page thing that just goes on and on. What was your impression of it?
0: Oh, I was really into it. I, I really, I liked the just the the insane red lighting in the latter part that I really enjoyed. But what I meant to tell you earlier was. Um, Early in the in the, the um, I guess the lifespan of the podcast, I remember uh, Michael came over, a couple people came over, and I said, "Guys, I got my first piece of like free swag from a listener, and it was an earlier version. I guess it might have been the art of Liz Point, but it was an earlier book of photographs. I was like, This is what you get." For hard work online, uh, just an insane tome of erotic art featuring Liz LaPointe. It, it was fantastic. And so that, that stayed on my bookshelf right beside like, all of my recording equipment for, uh, back in the original Wrong headquarters down on Bleecker Street. So, yeah, I totally forgot to give you a shout-out for that, uh, that earlier gift. So I, I, owe you, I owe you on two occasions now because you just keep sending me all these wonderful, beautiful books. Well, you're one of three people who's actually seen this
1: new version of the extended edition. All right. The other is Josh Stolberg, the screenwriter of Jigsaw, the last Jigsaw movie in 3D and Good Luck Chuck, among a few other things. Um, He might be contributing a little blurb for the when we print another. Very cool. And um, psychologist Dr. David Lay, I think he's a psychologist, but he's a a big... um, opponent of the anti porn movement and he's all about open sexuality and stuff.
0: Well another and thing they- I really liked in it was how you incorporate a lot of drawings with Liz in certain sequences. Like um, Bill Plympton did this thing for Penthouse years ago with the uh, porn star Julia Ann, where he combined his hand drawn illustrations with Julia Ann. She basically goes to a drive to goes to a drive in movie theater and all the characters start crawling off the screens and joining her in the car and they end up having this outrageous gangbang. But it was hysterical stuff because it's bill Planton with all this classic sense of humor and julia ann who was so game for whatever he wanted to cook up and uh she ended up coming to comic-con with us in new york and working the booth with us and they're selling all these posters and we got so much business that year because we had a living breathing milf legend in the booth with us and she was cool as hell she was she, she was so much fun but i liked how in the chosen nightmare you took that approach where you did combine some hand-drawn illustration with the model
1: Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, early on I was like I want to do something that's really like a graphic novel to pay tribute to my love of that narrative art form and to do something that would be like storyboards for a movie. So Well, let's take only... oh, go, go, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, no. it's only available through Blurb. We're selling it it's about 250 bucks and it, we're selling it at that price because it's about 100 bucks to produce it. Like, yeah, it's,
0: it's it's a big well-produced like like luxury item without a doubt. Right. Have and you I thought about break- breaking it up into like, almost like issues like a comic? Because I feel like there are certain scenes that it could be broken up into pieces and so on and so forth. You could almost like make 10 issues of it. That's a great idea. i or would giving love these do- ideas away for free. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be really cool. I would like to, to do or something do like I- a crowdfunding campaign where if you contribute like, uh, like five bucks a month, every month you get the next issue for free or something like that. Like you could do a, cu- a couple of different things. That's super smart. Yeah, thanks for that idea. My, my pleasure. You. If, you, if you take it, I'll I'll be proud if I see you implement any of that. You will get a, a credit for that for sure. For very, sure. Very nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about. History of eroticism in cinema. And we're going to be, today we're going to be talking about this movie, Betty Blue, which is a remarkable movie from the 80s. And if you haven't seen it, Criterion's going to be putting it out in a couple of months, the, the full uncut version. But right now you can see the full uncut three hour version on YouTube. Someone just posted it. I was like, all right, that works. It's, I'm sure it's going to get taken down at some point. But right now it's up there, beautifully restored with subtitles. And who knows? Probably one of the, like an intern working at Criterion who did it. But I've talked about this a lot on the podcast recently about how. Nudity and eroticism has fled the big screen to the small screen. And obviously, there's shows like Jet now on Cinemax, which are justifiably giving Cinemax back their name, Skinemax. I mean, you have Carlo Gugino and Giancarlo Esposito and all these marvelous actors, and it's unpretentious genre entertainment about thieves and criminals and insane nudity. And I just absolutely love and adore it. But if you think back to when I was a kid, I mean, you're a couple years older than I was, but in the 80s, it was totally normal to have mainstream erotic thrillers, whether you're talking about Adrian Lyne movies like Fatal Attraction or movies like uh, Basic Instinct, Paul, Paul Verhoeven, but these weren't considered like smut films or, you know, stag films. These were mainstream R-rated movies that were making vast sums of money. And it's just bizarre to me that the culture has changed so much where the majority of movies now, not, not exclude, but the majority of mainstream movies now are, they're, they remind me of young adult fiction. It's like Harry Potter or Hunger Games kind of each movie feels like the latest chapter in this young adult saga. And I see a lot of them and I enjoy some of them and that's fine, but I don't want that to be the only option. I guess, when did you become aware of all these forbidden pleasures at the cinema back in, back in the eighties? Like, well, what was your first big aha moment? Well, I think it's interesting the way that you frame that about the culture changing. Cause I think
1: what's happened is the irony here is that you don't see these R-rated NC seventeen type movies. I mean, literally nobody gets an NC seventeen anymore.
0: I mean, you get like um, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, but that's obviously oh. the exception as opposed to the rule. Right, and they still got an R rating. Yeah, to and it's it, if you watch it, it's like embarrassingly vanilla. I mean, there's there's some nudity, but these are it's basically soap operas with a, with some TNA. Right, and so
1: we have a culture now where in the mainstream we've we don't see it anymore. It's not as open as it used to be, but the internet you can see. Everything. I mean, stuff that you wouldn't even imagine being exposed to when we were growing up.
0: Absolutely. You
1: know, it was both more open. Like you would see nudity in a PG movie. I think Planet of the Apes has male nudity in it. Um, yeah, I mean, Clash if, of
0: the Titans, a Ray Harryhausen movie, has t- TNA. I mean, it's got and it's a it's a PG movie for little children.
1: We saw that stuff. I think there's a skinny dipping scene in Logan's Run, and that was PG. It was it was not shamed the way it is now. I mean, simple nudity. And I just think it's a it's a culture where we're we're dumbing down the culture. And I love superhero movies. Had I had these big budget superhero movies when I was a kid, I would have lost my mind. Absolutely, Because that what it's all about? Now I'm sick of them. I'm just I, and I I do enjoy and watch them all just about. But I'm like, come on, you know, can we get more Paul Verhoeven movies? Can we get more? And you know, ironically, I just saw that Paul Ber- Verhoeven made a movie called L, which I hadn't seen. Oh, it's killer! It's really and good. He, do you know who it's written by? I do not the author wrote Betty Blue. No
0: shit. Well, yeah. It makes perfect sense in hindsight, but L was my favorite movie. I guess maybe it was 2016 or 17. I can't remember which precise year, but in an era where movies increasingly are risk-averse and terrified of being provocative and directors are increasingly less iconoclastic, L was a giant fuck you to this tim- timidity and... And culture, and I I, just—I love seeing a director in their seventies still able to completely just burn the house down. And of course, Isabelle Huppert might be my favorite living actress, and she just goes for it.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. She's so brave, and that's what I love. I love actors. I remember Jennifer Jason Leigh citing *In the Realm of the Senses* as one of her favorite movies. That's a wild movie. So brave. That's what I love. I love people who are willing to go out on a limb, and. I I look at it as as confrontational. They are trying to wake people up and say, you are worried about the wrong stuff. We have mass shootings on a daily basis, and you're worried about a kid seeing a tit. That's the least of my worries. Well,
0: it's funny. You mentioned earlier how in the 80s how we did have eroticism in a lot of movies, but – Porn was hard to find. I mean, you had to go to, like, a video store and go through, like, a beaded doorway to find, like, the secret porn room. I think in the 80s and early 90s, I think I owned one porn tape in that entire period. And we basically played it until it turned completely grainy and blurry. But I basically never saw porn. I I would, like, maybe once every two or three years rent a porn tape. So it was really rare, really obscure. And most of what I had in terms of actual pornography was girl next door, playboy, maybe peniles, on a rare occasion hustler. But even now, it all seems very quaint and very wholesome. So it is funny how today, I mean, I, I do enjoy looking at pornography. And when you go on, when it starts suggesting things, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, whoa, like, uh, like <laughs> you're kind of tapping the brakes. Or like, oh my God, what? Actually, that looks kind of cool. I didn't know I liked that, but I guess I like that <laughs> now. And then you kind of go down that road. And so it is, you have this giant, endless forest of forbidden pleasures. And I guess maybe because there's such an abundance of that online filmmakers have felt less enticed to explore it So because maybe it just seems like it's so disposable and so interchangeable that perhaps it's less of a challenge but you do get filmmakers like like when you have a movie like blue is the warmest color where you yeah. have it went in the, the palm door at Khan and it has like a 20 minute full-blown like x-rated sex scene right in the middle of the movie that was just insane it was uh, off the charts but it just seems like it's Hollywood that's afraid of sex. And it's not Hollywood in the world of television because you go on Showtime, you go on HBO, you go on Cinemax, you go on even some of like uh, I guess uh, less scandalous brands. They have an abundance like Amazon. Their, their new show, that fantasy show with Orlando Bloom and um, uh, Carlo Del Villier, whatever you pronounce her name, this fantasy show, I'm blanking on the name, it's got a ton of people like making love to fairies and all sorts of mythological creatures. But if you go to the multiplex, I guarantee you right now there's probably not a single movie. With a shred of nudity. And it just, it's totally bewildering to me because the audience is there, but they're just, they're watching it at home. I think
1: it's, it comes, having managed a movie theater, it is about theatrical release and how people, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, I was, I managed it for all three of the films. And it is a very religious town that we came from, population of like 10,000 people or less. And
0: all the school teachers would go, all these women would go.
1: And they would, it was don't all tell women me. and their daughters. That's
0: what I noticed. So I was in line for uh, Kingsman, the, the first one, Secret Service, and this was the same opening weekend as the first Fifty Shades of Grey, and those women in their 60s with their like kind of late 20-something daughters, like hand-in-hand, hand, excited, like going out for like a big night to see Fifty Shades of Grey. I was like, yeah. all right, this is an interesting phenomenon. Yes, exactly. And I, there were women, this
1: blew my mind, but there was women bringing their teenage daughters to see it. And I was like, whoa, you know what's in this movie, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's OK. And I was like, really? It is OK.
0: Well, I know very little about the BDSM community, and it's something that in my private life I don't really experiment with. But my understanding is that people that who are really into kind of submission and domination encounters, they kind of laugh at the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Like yeah. they find them, it's like reading Archie comics. It's just, it's so heartbreakingly innocent and quaint that, I, all right, this is cute, but this is also, this is not representative of, of what we're into a, at all but my my great uncle who was almost 90 when the first book came out even he read it like it just blew my mind that something with of this nature was able to cross over into the mainstream and those movies made like 700 800 million worldwide each obviously there's a market there if someone wants to tap into it
1: yeah the thing is when we were growing up in the 80s you know in the 70s it was more free-spirited but in the 80s you saw a, an abundance of nudity in the theaters like revenge of the nerds Porky's, that or Friday the 13th movies. It was either to be made fun of or it was for horror, you know? And so it was rare until like mid to, to the end when you had movies like Nine and a Half Weeks come out, or they were exploring relationships and sexuality a little more openly. And I think that's what we've we've missed. I think people are are now the 90s was pretty open, and even the early aughts were pretty open. But now some sometime in the last 10-15 years. It's become more conservative.
0: I mean, Even we did a podcast about R-rated superhero movies a couple months ago, and it's funny how in like 08, 09, 2010, we had a ton of R-rated superhero movies. And they weren't necessarily always that preoccupied with nudity, but they were definitely provocative content. And now they're insanely rare. And just even the upcoming release of Joker has people all worked up into a frizzy over – they're saying that it's a normalizing like violent incel behavior. I was like, all right, this is a superhero movie, but a supervillain. Guess what? He's a bad guy. He's going to probably do some bad things. He's going to probably kill some people, poison some people. Like He's the Joker. He's a mass murderer. Everybody relax. <laughs> it's inherent in the character. He's like, what? He's been around for 80 years at this point. It just blows my mind that so many critics, people who in theory like movies, people who in theory are into culture, are tapping the brakes and issuing these warnings about an R-rated superhero movie, and that for me is what's really a stunning change because I always embrace provocative material, and I feel like if you're a real film critic or a real film goer, embrace it all, and I just I can't believe how many people who in theory should be allies to this throwing up a warning and caution flag, and that, that, that terrifies me. I shouldn't say terrifying, that's a little yeah. alarmist. It just it annoys the shit out of me. No, I think it, I think the
1: alarm is uh, legitimate. I think we should be concerned when people want to promote unrested development of our culture, where people want to go around acting like children and they only want to consume safe you know content. I have We have an eight-year old and he does not get exposed to adult content. I'm probably more sheltering than my parents were of me. And I love like you seeing hardcore stuff, but I also love going to see Dora the Explorer the movie. We had a blast watching that. I love watching Star Wars and movies that I enjoyed when I was a kid with my child. And Jurassic, we watched Jurassic Park, the original, with him last weekend. And, you know, it was PG-13, but we were like, okay, it should be okay. First half, he's great. And then about the end of the movie, he starts to put the pillow over his head and stuff. And then the
0: movie ends, and he goes... Okay, time for a short review. That was the worst movie I've ever seen. Really? <laughs> wow. Like, well, I'll show in Jurassic Park. I showed one scene the other day to my two-year-old nephew. He he, When I go over, he always wants to see something. So he either asks for cars, he asks for dinosaurs, or he asks for uh, Peppa Pig. And he kept saying, dinosaur, dinosaur. And he'd go like, rawr, he'd make these sounds. I was like, all right, you want dinosaurs? And I asked his mother for permission and said, can I show him the T-Rex sequence from Jurassic Park? She was like... Well, I'll sit beside him. If he seems weird, then I'll, I'll stop it. But yeah, sure. Show him the T-Rex scene. So I started the T-Rex scene and we're watching it on an iPad. He's sitting beside me and he is mesmerized. He can't speak. He doesn't react. He doesn't like smile. He doesn't gasp. And my sister Austin kept saying, are you okay, Alex? Are you okay? Are you okay? you kind of like, are you, are you scared? Are you happy? Are you sad? Like ask him all these questions. And he was just totally in the zone. And then when it ended, he just went, dinosaur roar like you know, but he 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 was able to get through the T-Rex sequence, so I guess he's ready to go. He's ready to go. Yep. Absolutely. What? Well, yep. let, let's talk about some of the highlights from the basically late 70s through the early 2000s Basically, I feel like every couple of years you have these spikes where a movie comes along that really changes the game. Where it's not porn, it's not an art film. It's kind of somewhere between. I I, I love the term Eurotrash, which is probably a little bit condescending, and a little dismissive. But I just when I worked, lived in L. A. at um, the New Art Theater, they had this uh, DVD store next door called Cinephile, and they just had an entire section devoted to Eurotrash, and it's basically a lot of like Paul Verhoeven films and things like that. But in the in the world of Eurotrash, that's often where you get these movies that really can change the way an entire generation looks at relationships. So, what are, what would you say are some of the? Because you sent me a list of a lot of. But, for people out there who don't know, when, I, when, I, when Terry and I started talking about this episode, Terry came up with enough ideas and enough t- topics and subject matter for basically a 12-hour recording, and we're going to definitely be returning to this topic to make sure we explore all these different chapters, but he basically mapped out 50 years of eroticism in cinema and what led to le- what, and he had all these categories for the different eras and so on and so forth, and I was blown away, but I was like, there's just no way we can do the deep dive on all of this. It'll just seem superficial, but for people out there who are just curious, what do you think are – what are the Hall of Fame movies of the last couple of decades that you think really are just the most eye-opening sexual movies you can see on, on, on the big screen? Well, it's funny. When, after I made my list, I went back and listened to your episodes where you discussed
1: some of the films that I had covered, uh, like nine and a half weeks. Mickey Rourke was one of my favorite actors, so I wanted to listen to that episode. And um, because when – and the film that we're going to talk about, Betty Blue, is the film that changed my life as a teenager – Because up until then, it had been Porkies and things like that, Penthouse Magazine. That had been my exposure to nudity and stuff. And, you know, my thing with nudity and sexuality in art is I had to go 18 years without seeing a girl naked, you know, and enjoying adult stuff. When I got the chance to see R.A.N. movies, I wanted to see all of them. And I remember the day that I went, I rented, we had a little um, video store in the town I lived in, in Petoskey. They had a good foreign section, but I'd never seen a foreign film or read subtitles until like I was 16 or 17. And I had heard Roger Ebert hated Betty Blue, but everything he said about it made me want to watch it. Yeah, he's
0: got a bad habit of saying like, I hate Blue Velvet, I hate Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, all right, well, these are some of the coolest movies of that period. So I don't know why people love you so much as a critic because you seem to overlook all the good stuff.
1: Right. So, you know, I went, I rode my bike because I didn't have my driver's license at the time. And I wrote it and I got Betty Blue and Agnes Varda's um, Vagabond. Gotcha. And watching Betty Blue from the minute it opens, as you know, like I, I'd never seen anything like that. And the male and female nudity is so abundant. It, it it changed everything. And then seeing Vagabond afterwards, I was like, Oh my God, what is this plate? Where is this? What is France really like? What is this all about? So from there on,
0: there was a movie called Just One of the Guys where there was a – Oh, hell yeah. I saw it a million times as a kid. Oh, oh my, my God. some <laughs> of the best
1: tits in the 1980s. Yes. I was like, oh, my God. And my dad, for some reason – Liz and I covered this on our podcast, Happily Cinemarried. Um, movies we saw too young that we probably
0: shouldn't have. Blame it on Rio. It oh, Michael I K- love Blame it on Rio. Hell yeah. yeah. The nudity in that was so abundant. And for some
1: reason, my parents were
0: okay with that. But it's but kind not of not like a- happy, healthy kind of let's go to the beach and take our top off nudity. It's, 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 I think it's, it's totally, totally harmless.
1: Where's the girls? Hi! Hi!
0: Isn't it a fabulous day? Fabulous. Aren't you a little uh, chilly, Jennifer? Chilly? I am.
1: I I I feel a little chill. No, really. Why don't we all get dressed and then go in
0: for a swim? You're embarrassed. No, I'm not embarrassed. (laughs) Oh, Daddy. Help me, Nikki. I love Michael Caine's embarrassment in that. When, like when like he and his buddy bump into their daughters at the beach, and they're not they don't have any tops on. And they're like, oh, it's kind of chilly out here, and they're trying to get them to put their tops back on. And yeah, it's 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 delightful.
1: Yeah, it, and there was a mo- movie called Summer Lovers.
0: Have you ever seen that with Peter Gallagher and Daryl Hannah? I have seen highlights on MrSkin.com. Mr. I have a lifetime membership to it now, but I've been a member since – it's been around since 99. I've been a member off and on since like 2002. So a lot of these movies from you know just the history of eroticism in cinema, I've seen the, the highlights many times over, but I haven't necessarily always seen the entire movie. Right. Have you seen Henry in June? Oh, hell yeah. I love Henry in June. Yeah, that's cool. I'm a big Philip Kaufman fan. I feel like he's another really underrated director. But I've, between that and the unbearable likeness of being and quills to a degree, he's been totally unafraid to explore a lot of sexual content. But yeah, it's uh, Henry in June, man. It's it's all about um, uh, is it Henry Miller, who wrote Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of... Yeah, T- yeah, yeah. And it's got uh Uma Thurman who's but is what what's the name of that French porn star like Brigitte LeHaye or whatever her name is who's also yeah. in it she has, she is one of my all-time favorites by far but yeah, that movie it definitely pushes my buttons in a in, in a very very uh memorable way it's
1: one of the sexiest movies ever made and it's one Henry Miller is one of my favorite authors because you
0: is, is that the name of the the actress who's uh from pulp fiction who's also in it yeah. yep she's great too she's so good yeah that was a perfect Perfect film if you love nudity and eroticism. Richard E. Grant's really good. I remember they go to see like a live sex show and it's like a, a Bridget, I can't pronounce her last name, Bridget. Brigitte, she's seducing like a, a younger, more shy woman and they're all just watching, but it's like they're at the ballet or at the, the opera. They're all kind of sitting there like in black ties, smoking cigarettes. It's like, where are those experiences now? I want to sit there in black ties, smoking cigarettes, watching live sex shows like I'm, like I'm at the MoMA, but that, that's definitely what it's like. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Um, if, if you haven't read any of Henry Miller's books, like, or if you've just scanned them, they're worth diving into, um, because he was a big. And this is my thing: I will, I, for me, I will look at the parental ratings on movies to see if an R-rated movie has sex and nudity, and if it doesn't have it, I'm not going to see it. <laughs> You know what I'm saying?
0: I mean, for me, I just as time goes by, I want my movies to increasingly just give me give me a reason to show up. I I just I'm less and less inclined to watch movies because they're on like somebody's top twenty end of the year must see list. And I just I I can't stand intellectual pretension. I like genre, and the older I get, the more I I like it. What I really like is when a genre film is made so perfectly and so well that it transcends the genre trappings and becomes a great work of art. For me, that's like the ultimate sweet spot and but it definitely when it comes to watching european art films it certainly helps if you're watching summer with monica ningmar bergman movie when you have a nice little little strip tease followed by a skinny dipping in the middle of the movie just it gives you a a little pat on the head a little bonus for watching an art film
1: right and i that's that's the thing i love my sex nudity in movies but i also love movies that have heart and that are smart and they're stylistic and they move you as a human being like and that's what Betty Blue did. Is it changed the way that I looked at cinema? From that point on, I was like, this movie is kind of about nothing in some ways. You know, it's not. It doesn't have any major plot things. It's just an exploration of love and how tragic and beautiful it is. And it opened my eyes.
0: Ça faisait une semaine que j'avais rencontré Betty. On toutes les nuits. Ils avaient annoncé les orages pour le soir. Je t'aime
1: <rire>
0: Tout ça, c'est pour toi. Tout. Tournez à votre enchant Foutez le cœur Tu So for people who have not seen Betty Blue, give us the name of the filmmaker, the star, the year. Kind of set the stage. Give us the the overall premise. What are the the, the official biographical information they need to know just about what it is we're discussing? I'm going to slaughter all of the names involved, including the original title. I can't pronounce French either, so you're, you're in good company.
1: Okay, good. So Betty Blue came out in 86. It's directed by... Um, God, I
0: can't pronounce. I it. I looked up like one of the things on like how to pronounce such and such, and I listened to it like six times, and I said, "I think I pronounce it worse now." Like I, I really, I really can't. So you, you can do no wrong.
1: I don't know, Jean. Uh, it's not even in front of me. So if you
0: want to attempt it, all right. The film is directed by Jean Jacques. I'm gonna say Benet, which is not it, but it's like Benex, so B E I N E I X. If you pronounce French, I'll let you pronounce it in your head. We're just gonna call him Jean Jacques. The, the real star, is, in, in this case, is the first film starring Beatrice Dalle. I always called her Dalle, but I looked it up, and that's also it's Beatrice Dahl, who's worked with Jim Jarmusch, who's worked with Abel Ferrara, who's worked with all these, and worked with um, uh, Claire Denis. I mean, worked with all these incredible filmmakers. Definitely one of the most Intense, insane, erotic, irreverent, provocative actresses of the last thirty, forty years. I mean, we'll, toward the end of the episode, I'll, I'll get into some of her personal drama, but let's just say she's led a controversial life. But this is the beginning of her film career.
1: Yeah, and what a beginning! And and the male actor uh, who plays Zorg is uh, Jean Hughes Unglade, I think. Um, but yeah, she is just amazing. I mean. The, and it's based on a book that I haven't read, but... Um,
0: yeah, same novel, the same name by Philip Dejan D-J-I-A-N, once again. I took Spanish for many years. I love Spanish. I, I make the mistake of always pronouncing every foreign word as if it's written in Spanish, which doesn't work. doesn't help at all with uh, with French. I took French in second and third grade, but I remember how to say green beans, and I can sing part of the national anthem, but that's about that's, the, uh, <laughs> the limits of my French.
1: I learned some trivia that 37.2 degrees in the morning or whatever the original title was is a reference to a woman's ovulation temperature in the morning. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yes.
0: So Betty and Blue is the, the American title, obviously quite a different title in French, but yeah, Betty Blue, where the character's name is Betty and she's very blue. And there's a lot of blue in the color scheme for the film. Yeah. The setting
1: of this thing, it's, it's almost like a desert. And I, I was surprised to see that kind of climate in France. Cause I think that I see it as it's either Paris, huge city or or it's the countryside. Or vineyards. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, you see these shacks. They, they live in this little community with all these shacks on stilts, basically. Um, and that was so foreign to me. That was so weird to imagine that people live like that.
0: Yeah, and the movie, it just throws you right into the deep end of the pool. I mean, the very first shot of the movie is the two of them just going to town, and the camera just slowly pushes in and lets you enjoy every little every little morsel, every little nugget, and they're just, there, just making love, and it slowly but surely gets closer and closer. But this guy, he's basically found a 10. He's found, I mean, what makes Beatrice Dahl so beautiful, I mean, she's obviously physically very striking, but she has this one physical imperfection, which somehow enhances everything. Her teeth kind of stick out a little bit and there's a gap between the two front teeth. It's almost like a Freddie Mercury thing where it just makes her a little unusual. And I find a beautiful woman with one imperfection, sometimes it just enhances the whole thing into the stratosphere. And she definitely has that going for her.
1: Yeah. She's for me, she's like the, the perfect woman in so many ways. Like in that at that moment of time, I was just like. I don't think I've ever seen – and she's naked throughout the whole film pretty much. I mean there are very few scenes where and, – and his uh, – John Hughes and Glade is also – Yeah, his,
0: his dingus is swinging in the wind for half the
1: flick at a minimum. And there's one scene where it's drawn out and they're messing with a bed or a piano or something, and he's just on full view. And I remember seeing that as a teenager being like, you would never see this in an
0: American film in a million years. Quick question. Have you ever seen a movie that's not porn that actually embraces – the male erection, because we see tons of male nudity on TV these days. And we see it in a lot of art films in France over the years and that sort of thing. But it seems like the ultimate taboo, the ultimate sin on screen is to show a man while aroused. And that's one thing I've never understood. It's like, well, if I were an actor and I was signing up for a movie where I had to be nude, I would have it written explicitly into my contract. I will not appear on screen unless I'm rock hard. (laughs) I'm not getting out of a cold pool and going going on screen. Exactly. Yeah, that's something my wife complains about in movies a lot. She's like, "Why
1: are there no male erections in movies?"
0: Also, she- nobody wants to see a, a a flaccid penis. They look they look repugnant when they're flaccid. Like, let let a man. You know, it's like flexing your muscles. Like, you got 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 to flex for the camera. Yeah, that's. I think the only movie I've seen is
1: Gaspar knows love from a few years ago. I know. Yeah, yeah, no yeah Ere-
0: that's a good a good call. But he literally just comes right into the camera. <laughs> So good. That was the first thing they shot. I was at the Angelica when Gaspar Noé and his female lead came and in introduce the movie. And he knew he needed just to break the ice very quickly and get his actors re- as relaxed as possible. He's like, all right, well, the best way I can just break down all inhibitions is by day one having my male lead just bust a nut right into the lens. And from that point on, everything else seemed pretty mild by comparison. Yeah, I love that movie so much. And did you see it in 3D? I did not. Yeah, the Angelica doesn't have a 3G, 3D three D projector, but it was cool just to have Gaspar Noe there in the flesh. How do they not have a 3D projector already? I don't know. I guess maybe the Angelica is not the world's most successful theater, but even like the IFC Center, which is only a couple blocks away, I saw Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams in 3D with the 3D projector there. So I'm not quite sure why it wasn't in 3D, but uh, it, it, we definitely did not have the glasses.
1: Nah, that's too bad. i I was gonna
0: buy um, a 3D television just for that movie because I was like I've got to have the whole experience. But yeah, that, in- that's a wild flick. I wish Gaspar Noé would work a little more frequently, but I guess he just he makes a movie when he's good and ready. But I enjoyed. Cl- it was funny how Climax was his first R-rated movie in the states, and I, I, I just love the fact that his entire career to this point has been nothing but NC-17. But he he's one of those he's one of the few filmmakers that really goes for it. And I remember when I read that he had loved The House That Jack Built, Lars von Trier's latest movie. I was like, all right, well, these critics who, the kind of critics who tap the brakes and ish, like ring the alarm bell for the Joker, who are also the kind of people who said that like, the house of Jack Belt was like a criminally irresponsible movie to make. So, like, if Gaspar Noé liked it, there's a very good chance that I'm going to like it.
1: The only thing criminally irresponsible is the failure of people to process things. You know, we're all responsible for how we react to things. And overreaction is usually our biggest crime.
0: Well, there's a, a line that I read recently. I was listening to Brady Sinellis' podcast and he was talking about people who have uh, certain rules about what you're allowed to say and what you're allowed to do in movies. And he had this incredible line where he said, um, he said, social justice warriors don't think like artists. They never have, they never will. They think like censors, people in the bureaucracy who want comrade approved art and want artists to follow a list of their rules to create that art. I was like, wow, you just like shot a a warning shot across the bow of all these, all these incredibly timid, cautious critics. And I just like caution and timidity in art are mutually exclusive in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, don't make safe art. It's not for that. It's for transforming the culture. Absolutely. That's that's why I hate where we're at. I just feel like I'm surrounded by adults who are acting like children. And it's like you should be able to watch something and not be offended by it or so upset by it that you can't process it. It's like we're the internet, and I do blame the internet as much as I love it for allowing people because we've given this technology now to places where education is not the best in these some of these rural areas i hate to say it but now they have the access to you know t- to tweet at people and to express their views and unfortunately they're practically idiots and shouldn't have opinions about things until they get more education
0: yeah it's a double edged sword cuz like without this technology you and i would not be doing a podcast we would never sure. met we would not be recording but the flip side is people can just shoot before they aim or before they're prepared. I, I'm so thankful that I didn't have Facebook until I was 30. And I didn't have Twitter until my early 30s. And I didn't really even get active on Twitter until like my mid-late 30s. And I just, I thank my lucky stars that at age 14, I was not on Twitter sharing my views. And so I, I love the fact that I'm old enough to have straddled the pre-social media age and the post-social media age, because I, I think I, I was saved from a lot of uh, self-harm and just un- unforced errors, et cetera. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Facebook is where I met Liz. So we met on Facebook through another model
1: that I photograph pretty frequently. And then about a year or two after that, I got off for good and eliminated my Facebook account because I was tired of hearing the opinions of people I thought I
0: respected and realize, oh, I don't respect you. Yeah, I just mute people and I move on because I want them to still listen to my podcast or I want them to watch yeah. my videos. And if you block them, well, then you're immediately, uh, you're, you're burning that bridge forever. And right. I, I need the clicks. So I, I just mute yeah. people and I move because there's a chance they might listen to something down the road. But when it comes to outrage culture or being offended, like a show like Grey's Anatomy offends me, not because it offends my sensibilities, but it offends me because I find the storytelling to be, simplistic and I find the guys to be such douchebags but my response is not to go on Twitter and say, oh, this offends me therefore you must fire your actors and fire your writers and end all their careers. I just don't watch it and I let the people who look, because there are people out there who love it it's been around for like 20 years at this point. I'm like, let the people who love it embrace it and enjoy it and throw fucking Grey's Anatomy Christmas parties like do whatever you want to do and I will go off and I'll watch whatever it is I I want to watch I just I don't understand that idea that because something is not to your taste it must be done away with and I just feel like the world's a great big place there's room for everybody to find the music they love the books they want to read the movies they want to watch and just let people enjoy what they want to enjoy exactly and stop shaming people and
1: judging them and treating them like shit because chances are that everyone does something in their life that they're not proud of or they don't wear on their sleeve. But it's like let people live.
0: Yeah. We should be at that stage. I think the most ashamed I've ever felt ever is in like fourth grade and somebody called me out for picking my nose in class and they saw me and I was like, <gasps> and my face turned Deep, deep, deep purple. But shame is a powerful emotion. And, yeah, even worse is if, like, a kid, like, in, like, third or fourth grade, if they accident, like, fart in class, and the kids just start laughing hysterically. But shame is a horrible, horrible emotion. So, yeah, please don't shame people. Just leave them to their – let them enjoy their greatest anatomy. You don't need to shame over it. You enjoy that. We'll be over here watching Jean Roland films. and you oh, I know. love Jean Roland. I need to see a lot more Jean Roland. The one, I, the big one I like is Fascination, which also stars Brigitte Lahey, or however you pronounce her name. I, I know I keep murdering it, but she's walking around with a scythe and like this long black robe, just swinging that fucker around. I mean, it's, it's intense, it's insane. But let's so get good. back to Betty Blue. So give us the story of Betty Blue. What what happened? It's a, I mean, it's a long movie, it's three hours, but I guarantee yep. you, you will not be bored. It is a fascinating experience, but give us the overall arc of these two lovers. So it starts out with the lovemaking scene, which to me, it looks like
1: it's that they were really having sex. It I do not simulate No, no.
0: I don't think Beatrice not.
1: Dahl knows how to simulate anything. <laughs> no. She's a method actor for sure. But it's uh, he's a handyman and he's living a quiet life. He lives for his hot chili and you know repairing things in this little environment. And she wanders into his life and is the most beautiful creature on earth, almost like an angel. And... He lets her move in even though his boss slash landlord doesn't approve. And they begin this journey of romance and
0: chaos. Yeah, what I love has how she's the first person to recognize that he actually might have the soul of an artist. He doesn't even really aspire to be an artist, but he has written a book. And she rips through this manuscript, and she's so moved by it that she devotes her entire life to finding a way to get his book published, recognized, because she thinks that a life spent – Painting houses and fixing pipes, etc., is just a, a life wasted for him. But he's totally happy just to work in restaurants and fix people's toilets and that sort of thing. He just he's a kind of an, an everyday blue collar guy who just enjoys having a few beers in the evening and making. I mean, I guess if you got Beatrice doll at home, like like you're you're good. Like you don't you don't need to really make any uh, improvements. But as he starts to learn over time, she's got some deep, deep, deep emotional issues, and sometimes. It's amazing where it's just this unbridled joy and these insane highs. And like the lovemaking is next level. I mean these are some of the hottest lovemaking scenes you have ever seen in a movie. But the lows are equally powerful and they become increasingly alarming over time.
1: Yeah. I mean she gets into a confrontation with a woman in a restaurant and she stabs her with a fork in the arm. I love that scene.
0: That girl deserved
1: it. (laughs) I I was on her side. And it's crazy too because I was mentioning to my wife, I was like, after rewatching it this weekend, I was like, man, every time Betty goes crazy, Zorg slaps her around, you know, to get her to stop being
0: hysterical. And I'm like, you, that is something you couldn't get away with now. Well, I think you the know? '70s was the great high watermark of slapping in cinema. When we did a '70s disaster movie episode, and like every movie has a scene with like women and men just slapping each other silly. And I guess they went out, it went out of style at a certain point. <laughs> But in the 80s, it was at least in France, but it reminds me of that bit of the Charlie Murphy bit when he's like, you know, Frenchmen used to like slap each other. I challenge you to a duel. Slap. And like, there'd be a gunfight after that. Somebody had to go. Like, you're slapping. You got to take that shit seriously. But I guess what I love most about this movie is like these strange scenes in between the lovemaking. Like we mentioned before, the bed scene. They're staying in this house. This woman has died, and she's superstitious. She doesn't want to sleep in the, the bed of a dead woman, so she's trying to get her her lover to open up the sofa bed. So he's he's buck ass nude, trying to like get this handle to work. He's like using a crowbar, and he's like falling down and falling over, and his his dick's flying all over the place, and it's just hysterical stuff. We've all been there where it's like the old Seinfeld, bit. there's good naked and there's bad naked. Like good naked. It's like somebody hops out of the shower and like, ah, oh, I'm ready. Bad naked is like, if you walk into a room and somebody's hunched over, like tying their shoelaces and you see their ass going, That's bad naked. This is a classic bad naked scene, but man, just Beatrice Dahl is, she's so uninhibited and so natural. You, uh, you could watch her. I mean, you can, and you quite literally will watch her for hours in various states of undress.
1: Yeah. And it's so interesting because, you know, we mentioned him, that hidden manuscript and she finds it and basically stops talking to him for the whole time that she's reading it and sits there over the course of like a day and a night and reads the entire thing and praises him, makes him at like a dinner and then has another confrontation with um, his boss and Takes throws everything they have, packs up stuff, and then burns the place down. Yeah, and I they- love how
0: she like throws him off the porch, and she like will like scream at this guy and berate him, and she's got like her bush on full display, and yeah, she has no fear. When they go visit a publisher at one point who wrote an angry like rejection letter, and she whips out a comb and like slashes his face open. She's she's definitely one of those girls where if you go to a club you're probably going to end up in a fight and it's probably going to be her fault <laughs> she definitely <laughs> stirs the pot but just she she leans into confrontational situations she's not uh, not afraid of conflict but I in an ideal world she would just enjoy the countryside and enjoy the flowers and the sunsets like she does seek peace and tranquility but she just she wants all these things in life and she's very frustrated when these things don't happen and yeah, it's just when she reacts it's incredibly intense but she's so sweet at times at one point he's they've been painting houses all day he's completely passed out. He's dead to the world. And she just pulls his sheet down and he's sitting there and his his little flaccid member. And she kind of kisses it and rests her head on it. But she's like saying goodnight to his, to his little wee-wee before they go to sleep. And it is a very sweet little tender moment. It's super tender. It was super brave and powerful.
1: And I was just like, God, this is so real. It's so honest. It's so rare to find a movie like that. And I love that, you know, I was exposed to it. I was a pretty sheltered kid. But like, just seeing that and seeing this woman believe in this struggling you know suffering artist who had basically given up on his dreams of being a writer or whatever she's a genuine muse Uh, yeah and that's that's what's so great that's why i'm so happy i found my wife liz that you know she was this person who saw this greatness in me that i didn't see in myself and you know to this day i'm like ah honey i don't know we just do what we do but she's like no you're gifted you you're a talent. you have this vision and it's just so nice to be with somebody and it's great because in the movie betty blue uh You know, they flee the country for the city, and then that becomes kind of turbulent and chaotic. They end up living in that hotel with uh, her old friend, that woman, and then um, Gerard Damon, I think he's a French crooner, and a great actor with that huge nose.
0: He's incredible. He's a brilliant addition to. It. When he shows up, it adds a lot of levity and a lot of fun and a lot of camaraderie to the movie. And those scenes where they're just sitting around and drinking and laughing and like Beatrice Dahl sitting there with like a tit hanging out, just chugging on a bottle of wine. It's like fuck yes. It's like the my, those are my ideal parties. Are just a handful of people and everybody's getting a little loose and inappropriate.
1: Right, and they're but everybody's open. It's so hard for us to make friends these days because people seem so guarded. I really miss like the '90s when I'd be walking along and. Somebody on their porch would be like, hey, come on up and hang out with us. You look cool. You know, just making friends naturally. Now, people don't have that opportunity because they're on their phones or they're so engaged in, you know, the matrix.
0: Absolutely, without a doubt. Well, another erotic scene that totally caught me off guard because it's not usually like a fetish of mine, but uh, the handyman sitting next to this woman who recently had a child, and her husband hasn't really been touching her at all lately, and she's really – annoyed by just the direction her her marriage is going and she just exposes one of her breasts and asks the handyman to see like how full and how hard it is and as I was watching I know there's some guys out there where their fetish really is pregnant women like they did they watch movies with pregnant women all day long and it, it definitely is not something it's not what I seek out but in that scene, I was like, oh, my God. Like, now I see what everybody's talking about. Great. She's not pregnant. She's recently had a child. But it's an incredibly erotic scene. And then like five minutes later, he's working in some grocery store and turns around. And I think, what's her exact line? She's, uh, she's standing there. She's got like, uh, oh, yeah, she's, she's standing right beside him. And he suddenly hears, eat my pussy. <laughs> he just grabs his head and starts like shoving it into her crotch. I mean, I was howling with laughter. It was so goddamn funny. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Well, let's talk about when this movie gets dark because at one point the handyman comes home and the apartment is just strewn with blood and there's like handprints. I mean, it's like something out of a Dario Argento movie. And he learns that Betty has actually removed or pierced one of her own eyes. And this is when the movie really takes a, a, a serious turn.
1: Yeah, that was heartbreaking. She her, her mental issues had gotten so bad at that point. And I think
0: a lot of it... The original? Did you see the non-director's cut? I've only seen because I ne- I'd seen the the highlights of Mr. Skin for years, but I'd never actually watched the movie until you recommended it. So I've only seen the director's cut.
1: Oh wow! So the original, you don't get that she's longing for to be a mom. You don't get that whole aspect of it was omitted from it.
0: Oh, so like because the, there's a false
1: alarm. She thinks she's pregnant at one point, but she's not. Right. And so that's not really a part of it. And there's a lot of things that have changed. They took out stuff for the director's cut and added like forty minutes of it. And it really changes the tone of the movie. Um, Both versions are excellent, but this one's much... It makes more sense why she reaches the level of lows that she does by the end of it. Yeah, that was really hard for me to see um, as a kid. Because the movie is so... Even though she's crazy, you just think, well, everybody's got their thing, you know, their, their weaknesses. But as the movie increases and she becomes more unstable... You know, you start to feel like there's a hopelessness there that, you know, maybe true love isn't attainable and maybe this isn't as ideal as it it seems.
0: Yeah. And of course, in the hospital, they've got her restrained and they've got her heavily medicated and they're talking about how they're going to need to give her electrotherapy. It's She's definitely starting to appear to be a lost cause. And it, we almost have like a, a one a one flew over the cuckoo's nest scenario at the end where he ends up killing her with a pillow rather than have her go through the just the horror and misery of all these things that are being planned for. Yeah, it
1: took me a long time to process that because I couldn't imagine finding your soulmate, your your better half, and then being able to accept that it wasn't going to continue. You know, and even going as far as to being the one to end her life. <laughs>
0: but it does give it the. I mean, if you're going to make a movie that's tragic. You need a tragic ending, and there's nothing more tragic than that, but I guess it does have like a subtle note of optimism at the end where you see that his book has been accepted and that he probably is gonna like she truly has been like the muse that it's launched his career because it's only at her urging and her encouragement that he even submitted the 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 manuscript at all and so you see that he's i mean I guess it's probably one of those things where the guy who wrote the book it was almost like wishful thinking. Like, I wish I could meet this 10 out of 10 who's going to come into my life, make sweet love to me, go crazy, and then I get to become a famous author, it's <laughs> et cetera. It almost
1: made me wonder, too, that if this, the story that we see unfold all the way to the end is the book that he wrote. And I never had that, that thought that maybe that was a possibility until I rewatched it again this weekend. I was like, I wonder if they were implying that maybe this was his story, you know?
0: Yeah, it could be. I mean, I guess every novel or screenplay is a confession to a degree, but I just don't know enough about the author to know. But I yeah. do want to share some of the uh, personal antics from Beatrice Dahl's life because she was, as, you, as people will see, she was – perfectly cast. She's been arrested many on many occasions for shoplifting, drug possession, assault. She In January of 2005, she was making a movie about prison life and breast, and she met a guy who was serving a 12-year sentence for assaulting and raping his ex-girlfriend, and she ended up marrying him after one of her 24-hour visits. I mean, it was a total disaster, according to her, after the fact. But her boyfriend at the time of, uh, I think it was actually, was it the... Uh, it was her boyfriend at the time of Betty Blue. When they broke up, he ended up killing himself. I mean, he just ah. apparently when she's in love with you, you definitely feel like you're like the you're standing and you're the the sole person on this earth receiving like the ray of the sun. But that when she moves on and turns her attentions elsewhere, you're just you're you're lost. And so she has yep. this effect on people where even people who are gay will like f- completely fall for her. She's just got this incredibly seductive personality. But I have to admit that she's also one of those actresses that weirdly continue to get hotter and hotter and hotter as time goes by. I mean, if you watch the Abel Ferrara film, uh, The Blackout in the late 90s, it's like, whoa, like she's marinated over like the 12-year interim. She's gotten like, there's this hysterical scene in the back of a car where Matthew Modine's rubbing her nipple and he's basically trying to make the pitch that no one on earth does it the way he does. She's like, no, everybody does it like you do. And She's kind of smoking and looking away from him, but it's so casual and so dismissive, but it just makes me shriek with laughter every time I see that scene. Oh, yeah, it's so good. you love me. You know.
1: I know you love me.
0: I know you love me when what? I touch you like this. Everybody in the world can do that. No one does it like me. Yes, everybody can do that like you. No. Yes. No. Oh, yes. No. Yeah, blackouts fantastic. But also what else? She uh, Apparently at one point she bit the ear off a cadaver while tripping on acid in a city morgue. So <laughs> I mean, I've, done, I've done many strange things on hallucinogenics, but I've never bitten the ear off a dead person. And also no. she likes to embarrass journalists. At one point, there's a journalist who was asking her about her cocaine possession and she says... Why don't you just go home and fuck your mother? If I wanted to talk to a dickhead, what makes you think I'd choose you? Like she's she's a very saucy lady. If you uh, uh-huh. if you don't bring your A game when you're interviewing her, yeah. Oh, so here, it is. yeah. Her first husband, the artist Jean-Francois Dahl, committed suicide three months after their breakup, and then she met her husband, second husband. Juanelle Maziani when when he's an inmate serving time for rapes. So, yeah, she is just... uh, She is a a crazy bitch. But I just... I, I love and adore her and I just find her absolutely fascinating. And I like this... Marcus Pence pointed out a lot of times how you have these filmmaking families or circles of friends and that family of... Jim Jarmusch and Claire Denis and all their friends and collaborators, you see how they kind of trade actors and swap actors around. And it seems like Beatrice Dahl is definitely one of the more dangerous, exciting ingredients in that extended filmmaking family.
1: Yeah. She's such a – she's a legend, and she's still beautiful today. It's funny you mentioned Jim Jarmusch. There was a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown when I lived in New York that I used to go to quite a bit. And you would always see Jim Jarmusch standing outside this place, not talking to anyone, just standing still. And I'd always want to tell him how much I enjoyed his work, but I never would bother him, because he looked like he would rather stab you in the face than have you talk to him. And he's the king of cool,
0: without a doubt. <laughs> now, did you ever see the Beatrice Dahl film Trouble Every Day, directed by Claire yeah. Denis? Gallum. Yeah, I mean, that's a wild movie. But you want to tell him a movie that takes people to uh, to places where they might not want to go. If you were to release, I think that came out in 2001, if you release that today, these – So-called critics out there, I mean, they would just die of fright on the spot. I mean, you have a scene where Beatrice Dahl, who's been boarded up in a room, basically entices a guy to free her by lifting her dress up. And this guy rips all the boards free. They throw down. And initially, it is a pretty erotic scene. But what he doesn't know is that she's a vampire. But it's not one of those elegant, sophisticated vampires who puts like two little pinpricks in your neck and kind of casually drains your blood. She basically just eats you. And so she's laughing and making love to him. And eating them all at once, and you want to talk about an unbridled, just go go for it performance. Beatrice Dahl fucking, and this guy's screaming in agony and hard. She's just pitting him down, eating his face, fucking him. It is intense. But I always recommend when people say, "Oh, Claire Denis, she's just some art art director," I say, "Take a look at Trouble Every Day, and that you will revise your view." Yeah, for sure. It's so intense,
1: and that, But that's the kind of movies we need. We need to be shaken to our core. Because, you know, I'm not religious and I blame religion for a lot of the, uh, you know, the views that people have that I think are damaging and, you know, oppressive. But we need spirituality. We need, and I think movies that dig deeper like this enrich us. And they, they give us an insight that we don't get going to an uh, eight-hour job, you know, every day and, you know, paying the bills and stuff. We need to escape. We need the fantasy so that we can think, well, is this the best way I could live? shouldn't I be able to live, like, eyes wide shut and go to under our parties where
0: everyone's having an orgy? You know, like, shouldn't we live like that rather than Hell die? Hell, yes. It's a weird thing where people love to join groups that indulge in, like, cult-like beliefs, cult-like behavior, even if it's on a grand scale. And it's a weird thing I'm noticing, and it, it seems like in just the last two or three years where it has the kind of belief in the moral certitude of a cult, but it's not based in religion, and it's this whole kind of online population that pushes back on freedom of expression and I just can't be a part of it. And I, I just I, I, I try to in as polite a way as possible kind of oppose it by basically celebrating things I love. Like for me I found both the podcast and the YouTube channel are at their best when instead of attacking people for their views, instead I just call attention to things that I love. And so whether it's a movie like Betty Blue or a movie like Trouble Every Day or a movie like uh, or The Blackout, by calling attention to the things that are great, you, you invite people into the conversation. You're inviting them to the party as opposed to making everything an adversarial relationship. And so my hope is that this period we're living in is a short-lived one because, I mean, when I see like Dave Chappelle with this stand-up bit that came out last week, uh, Sticks and Stones, which is like a primal scream against that kind of cancel culture, I know there are other people out there who think, uh, who believe in saying and doing whatever you want in, in the name of artistic expression. So I think there's plenty of cause for hope, but it, it is a very strange period in which we live. And I feel like it's part of the job of my podcast to make sure that I'm celebrating things like Betty blue, because there's just so many people that are trying to actively kind of stamp them down.
1: Yeah. You, and you do such a service because you cover um, some films and, and themes that I think people really need to say to, to be exposed to. And I think the way that you do it is in a place from positivity because People shut down if you start attacking them. So- 100%.
0: Even if like someone's like, I don't like to drink water. Like, fuck you. If you don't drink water, you're going to die. They're like, well, fuck you. Maybe I want to die. Like, they just <laughs> People people dig in their heels. People naturally will be contrarian if somebody tells them what to do or what to think. So I think don't tell people what to think. Don't tell people what to say. But just lead by example. And once again, if you are celebrating great books or say great paintings, like great works of art, whatever your, your chosen medium might be, some people – Will raise their eyebrow, get curious, and they'll come and have a look for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's my thing. It's like I was fine shooting models nude and doing that for many years. And I thought that was, I was creating work that I thought was really beautiful and artistic. And, you know, then we moved to a small town and some idiot starts like saying that we're promoting rape culture and writing these fake reviews and attacking me. And I'm like, okay, you want to see porn and stuff? Here's the chosen nightmare for you. Here's, you know, I'll show you you know, graphic imagery and like, you know, my response to that.
0: Now, what is your podcast about and what is kind of the role your podcast plays in your overall output of all your various photos and books, et cetera? The podcast is really
1: just Liz and I over coffee every morning. We'll talk about movies and stuff. And we have a ritual where we give each other back massages and scratch each other's backs through movies every night. Very nice. And switch halfway through the movie. And then we'd have these great conversations about them. And we said, you know, we should do a podcast where we just talk about movies and it'll just be us two knuckleheads doing that. And so we started it about six months, nine months ago after, you know, we walked away from a different podcast on politics that we have decided we want nothing to do with. You know, there's enough of that being done. So
0: it's just for fun. Yeah, the whole political thing, like right now, I've never seen more, like I remember in the 90s where people thought politics were boring and I kind of wished that would come back a bit. Maybe you could say, oh, we were apathetic. Maybe we were uninformed, but people definitely seem to have a lot more fun. Like I see a lot of people making themselves ill by consuming nothing but politics like 18 hours a day. So they live in a constant state of like heightened acute anxiety, like a permanent state of crisis. And I want to tell them, look, go for a run, take a nap, Watch Betty Blue, relax. Like there there are things to be enjoyed. And if you stay off Twitter for a week, the world will continue to rotate on his access. And when you come back, Everybody's still gonna be fighting about Last Jedi and all, all that stuff. You're not gonna miss anything. Like here we exactly. are, like, two years later, people still arguing about the movie. Like all those, all those debates will still be ongoing. So yeah, people need to definitely stop and enjoy things. But do you have any final thoughts on Betty Blue and what it meant to you, and just what it, what its place is in film history? Before we start kind of looking toward the end of the of this show, because I want to make sure you've had a chance to shine a light on everything that you love about this particular movie. Well, it
1: represents the, the kind of films like, like Eyes Wide Shut and uh, Henry and June, like we talked about, Nine and a Half Weeks, um, the kind of movies that are free and promote being free. And, you know, if you're because cons- there's nothing shameful if you're a consenting adult, you know, sexually, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And I think the film really promotes that kind of healthy, natural sexuality. And Europeans are so much more open about sex and nudity than Americans and I, I long for that. Yeah, I long they have for
0: nudity it. in soap commercials. They're just like... Yeah,
1: <laughs> and it's not a big deal. You know, we take our son to a museum frequently, and there's nude statues and stuff. And one of the curators was took me aside and was like, your son is so mature and healthy about the way he views this stuff and can comment on it. And it's true. He doesn't
0: get weird about that stuff. And it's a tale as old as time itself. I visited the Vatican this summer, and I was thunderstruck by the fact that so many of the statues like 15 1600 years after the statues were carved had fig leaves added over the the juicy bits and it just blows my mind that there are times in history where culturally and artistically we take just giant leaps backwards and obviously these these Greek artists like what are you talking about the plays or the sculptures or the philosophy or the mythology of the Greeks 2000 years ago was absolutely extraordinary it blows my mind they were living at such a high level and that you could go like a millennia and a half later, and that people who are, in theory, should be experts in art because they're collecting all these great works of art and putting them all in one place. We're like, well, they were wrong we got to cover up his his dingus we got to cover up her little cooch like that how shameful it, it just just to step in and ruin some of the greatest works of art in human history
1: yeah that is shameful that's the only shame there is in that equation
0: yeah and i, I and i think we're seeing a little bit of instinct today when you see people say oh well this movie is now problematic even though we laughed at it 10 years ago so we need to go back in and remove this bit and then re-release it like just make a new movie like do something new according to your values, tell the story you want to tell but once a book comes out, once a movie comes out, leave them the fuck alone uh, don't try to revise history, when I see people changing animated movies, it just it, I become incense. it seems like animation more than anything because in theory it's supposed to be for kids, so they'll go back and uh, kind of rewrite history, but I've got your original list that you sent me of uh, some of the erotic films that you really love and I want some of those we have not discussed yet, I wanted to at least give you a chance to just give a shout out to them, so if somebody has not seen Love from 1992, what's going down in that flick the the lover oh the lover sorry my bad have you seen that one um i've not
1: i've not seen the lover have you ever seen color of night with bruce willis and jane march i have absolutely okay
0: so she was that was her first film the lover and you should go watch that this week it is amazing well i will put it on my wish list on mrskin.com just to just to get things going yeah you will love it all right what about nine songs nine songs um michael winterbottom the english i think he's english Great director. Yeah, I saw like 24-hour party people, and I saw The Trip, and those are both outstanding. The Trip I've seen many times. I love The Trip.
1: He has a new one out that I saw on Vudu or one of the streaming services uh, about an Indian arranged marriage, and Dev Patel plays this like hitman or something that goes to rescue this bride. It looks amazing. But Nine Songs is a movie about an American woman and an English – I believe he's English – they start a relationship, and the sex scenes in the movie are actual hardcore sex scenes. And he basically made this couple, these actors, become kind of an item for this movie, and then interspersed it with nine songs from like uh, the Von
0: Bondies and bands like that. Oh, cool. And- it's one of the most erotic movies ever made. Nice. once again, going on my to-do list. Now, this is a movie that's come up many times in the podcast before, and Leanne Kubich referred to it as the Citizen Kane of nail polish movies, but Showgirls. What are your thoughts on Showgirls?
1: Showgirls is a movie I saw in New York City in the theater, and that was one of those movies like Basic Instinct where I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and that was just incredible. And it, I'm not somebody who's going to say that's a great movie, but it's a movie I love.
0: Yeah, I've seen it many times, but the scene that gets me off the most by far is when, uh, um, oh, I'm blanking on, what's the name of the, like, the the first star, the the girl from Bound, um... um Oh, Gina Gershon. Yeah, Gina Gershon, when she decides to treat McLaughlin's character to a lap dance in this club, and they go up to the VIP room, and Elizabeth Berkeley gives him the lap dance to end all lap dances, and just goes berserk and makes McLaughlin come in his pants, and Gina Gershon's like writhing and watching it. It's just a banana scene, but that scene is uh, very special, and I, I've I've easily seen that scene a hundred times. It it really it really pushes my buttons, but it's so good. Now we, this has also been talked about on the podcast before, but what are your thoughts on Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac that's also on your list I think that is
1: such and that's that movie was a big inspiration for The Chosen Nightmare because it was the kind of thing where it's like I'm not going to censor myself at all I'm going to you know photograph this stuff and go as far as I have to because it is just so epic and I don't I don't think it needs to be dismissed at all I think it's a tremendous work of art it's very rich and I know you hate Shia LaBeouf which I – remember you said that? Absolutely, one yeah. Because <laughs> he's such a goon, you know? He's so weird and just ridiculous. But I do enjoy his performance in this because he's he's not afraid to make himself look ridiculous ridiculous in this movie. And so. he
0: is made to look ridiculous over time where I – mean, I guess I always like seeing movies where he kind of gets humiliated a little bit. But yeah – I Anybody who's I should give him some benefit of the doubt in that he's willing to make a movie with Lars von Trier where you're basically walking out on a tightrope and you don't quite know how things are going to turn out. But it was right around the time of *Nymphomaniac* where he started indulging in all the public antics that made me dislike him. When he was like wearing bags over his head and crying yeah. and like I'm no longer famous, he just started doing all this really silly behavior and that's what really turned me against him. But if I guess if, you have a, yeah. if I were to be objective and just focus on the performance, he's he's totally fine. But I really do in, enjoy *Nymphomaniac* as well. I, I saw it at the Hong Kong International Film Festival and it just blew. My my mind. I think it's one of Lars von Trier's strongest. Now, um, make a case for Alan Parker's Angel Heart. That's also on your list.
1: Angel Heart was one of the, that was the movie that made me want to be Mickey Rourke. I was like, I want to be an actor. I want to be that guy. When I got, when I lived in New Orleans, I would talk to people who had met him when he was down there filming it and stuff. And they told me great stories about him. But I would just remember, you know, we all grew up on the Cosby show and you know, my wife is half Ethiopian, half white. And she, um, you know, when she doesn't straighten her hair and stuff, she has that super curly hair. Lisa Bonet was like my ideal. So when I saw that sex scene, I was like, You get the fuck out of here right now with that. That is the most amazing scene I've ever seen. In my
0: life. I don't care if there's blood dripping down and whatever else. That is it for me. And just her character is so frank. I mean, at one point she's talking about one of her encounters earlier and she's like, Oh yeah, it's the best fuck I ever had. And the way she says it so matter of factly, I was like Good God! Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a killer movie. One of Alan, maybe Alan Parker's strongest. I mean, he's he's made a lot of really solid ones, but he's another director, sadly, who doesn't get talked about it anymore. But eighties uh-huh. and early nineties, goddamn, he's doing stuff like The Commitments and Pink Floyd The Wall, and he's doing all kinds of cool things. But well, not least, not uh, last but not least on your list is a movie. It's twenty year anniversary, and you mentioned it briefly earlier, but make a case for Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut. I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan. I've
1: read a lot of books about him. Um, I have like his archive book, and I grew up with his movies and think they're brilliant. But Eyes Wide Shut, for me, uh, is one of the most perfect films ever made. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. We all know he's meticulous, and he takes years to finish projects. And that one had been percolating with him for a long time. Um, and the fact that he got two of the biggest stars in Hollywood to do this film... And I'm not a huge fan of Tom Cruise because I think he just is Tom Cruise in every movie, just about that he does. But I like watching him. I enjoy watching Tom Cruise, you know. But I thought it was so brave of everybody involved in this movie. And such a beautiful movie about relationships and a realistic portrayal of marriage. And, um, you know, our fears and our inhibitions and the way that we, we all really want to live out our fantasies. But most
0: of us are too afraid to. I thought it was brilliant. A perfect last film. Very cool. Well, if people want to talk more with you or enjoy your podcast or enjoy your art, give us <coughs> all the places people can find you on social media, your show, your art. Now's the time to give people all the vital stats so they can become more familiar with your overall output.
1: Well, I have Twitter. I have two Twitters at twenty seventy or at Terry twenty seventy. So it's T E R R Y two zero seven zero. That's my shadow band account. You can still find it if you look Twitter for it. Twitter loves to
0: shadow ban people. I mean, it's one of those things, people don't know what shadow banning is, they don't take away your account, but they kind of put you in a little sandbox where it's very hard for people to see your tweets unless they go looking for them. But like you're just not going to appear on people's feeds. And I feel like sometimes you go in and out of shadow. Like they'll shadow ban people for certain periods of time for political views they don't like or for provocative content. And so, yeah, Twitter definitely, there's a lot of fuckery at Twitter. I, Twitter's a very useful platform, and I meet a lot of very interesting people through it. But I dis- strongly disapprove of a lot of Twitter's tactics, and shadow banning is oh. definitely one of them. Yeah. So
1: you can look for me there or Osterhout Art, and my website's terryosterhout.com. You can also find my work with my wife. Um, on lizlapointe.com and if you haven't seen her youtube show the naked advice it's uh i think it's
0: pretty great oh hell yeah no she has she has tons of great videos we're tackling some <laughs> really wild topics all right i think the first one i saw was somebody wrote in about how uh either the husband or the boyfriend she checked like his search history and he was watching a lot of transgender porn she was like whoa well what's this all about and liz was like all right well I'll help you figure out what it's all about. And she just laid, she laid it, laid it all down. I was like, all right, she is, she is really going for it with some, some undiscovered, uh, undiscovered territory. So yeah, I, I definitely strongly recommend people hunt her down.
1: Yeah. Liz is something else. She is the strongest, coolest, most brilliant. And she's recently taken up oil painting and like, there's nothing this woman can't do. And when I met her, you know, I was just like, Oh, I want to photograph this woman naked like every day for the rest of my life. And she gets more beautiful with age. I mean, she's now almost 45 and it's like, Good Lord, you know, she looks like she's in her twenties still. Like Beatrice Dahl, improving with age. Right. And, you know, Liz on a book right now about her experience with the Naked Vice and all the crazy letters she's gotten. Um, and it's gonna be really, really interesting. She's she gets you know, she's made some great relationships and friends with some people who I think feel uh, you know, kind of ignored by
0: society, so very cool. It's really cool. Well, Terry, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you on this episode, and we'll definitely have to talk some more. I feel like we've got a few thousand movies left to, uh, to, to discuss on this subject, uh, but we'll just work our way from the beginning of Immoral Tales to the end and slowly but surely shine a light on all this forbidden cinema, but thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've looked forward to this for a very long time, and I hope uh, we can do it
0: again sometime. Hell yeah. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this show. If you want to talk to me on Twitter, find me at Colbrax or on my YouTube channel at uh, Geeking with James Hancock. And we're now selling wrong Real merchandise, so definitely check on the show notes. There's a link to where you can find our stuff on tplus.com. T plus or Tspring? T- I always forget if T Tplus or t Spring. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes. Click on that. You can buy coffee mugs and or T-shirts. I'm going to be adding some more loot in the near future but definitely check out Betty Blue definitely check out some of his flicks we discussed and definitely check out some of Terry's art I think you will thoroughly enjoy it just like I have for the last few years so thanks again for listening greatly appreciate it but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do you know how to whistle don't you Steve you just put your lips together and
1: blow